0: U.S. only. Learn more at public.com/disclosures/high-yield-account.
1: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry, and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. This is
2: Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI members reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon; Sam Zell, Chairman and Founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Second thoughts about food in Ukraine, about Chinese economy, and about where the Fed is heading. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on Silicon Valley Bank and the risk of contagion. I don't see if this is handled reasonably, and I have every reason to think it will be, that this will be a source of systemic risk. Of am signing specialists of Rock Creek about the politics and returns of ESG investing and investor Sam Zell about what ports to seek when the storms are coming in. We're talking about
3: ending free money, but we're not ending free money.
2: This week was a time for reconsidering on global Wall Street as the war in Europe raged on and Ukrainian forces fought valiantly to hold on to Bakhmut.
4: Bakhmut
3: is surrounded on three sides. Reportedly, the calculation Zelensky's making is that he'll wear down Russian forces which are not very capable.
2: Even as leaders like Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan warned that the situation there poses one of the biggest risks to the global economy. The thing I worried the most about if you go, is Ukraine's so oil, gas, so the Tip of the world and, you know, our relation with China. I mean, that that is much more serious than the economic vibration you all have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. At its National People's Congress, China's leadership laid out new, more modest projections, raising questions not only for China, but for global growth.
1: If you look at the trends of the GDP target they set uh, over the years, actually since 2018, they've been gradually lowering the GDP growth target. So I think this is also a sign that increasingly the Policymakers are increasingly emphasizing on the quality of growth rather than quantity. While Fed Chair Jay Powell left little doubt
2: that the continued strength in the economy makes higher rates more likely than lower. The latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated. If the totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we'd be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. And the prospect of those higher rates hit tech banking hard as Silicon Valley Bank went from panic to receivership in 24 hours.
5: SVB Bank has now failed. The FDIC uh, takes over and has appointed a receiver. It is the first insured institution to fail so far this year
2: jobs numbers out on Friday would have been encouraging, but for that SVP's failure, with the U.S. adding another 311,000 jobs, while wage increases slowed a bit. But all the jobs in the world couldn't overcome Chair Powell's warnings about higher rates, and then the shutter sent through the banking sector, leaving the S&P 500 down over 4.5 percent for the week, while the Nasdaq lost 4.7 percent. But of course, the flight to safety drove investors to bonds, leaving the yield on the 10-year 25 basis points lower on the week. almost all of it really coming on Friday. Here to help us sort all this out are Sarah Ketter, Causeway Capital Management CEO, and Barbara Reinhardt. Head of Asset Allocation at Voya Investment Management. So welcome to both of you, Barbara. Great to have you here you. with us. So it was quite a back-and-forth week. We, we had the Powell testimony that seemed to are going to go higher. Uh, we had the jobs numbers, and then we had the SVB situation. What do you make of all of it?
5: Look, I think that the overwhelming thing that happened this week was the receivership of SVB, right? It's, a, it's one of the largest bank failures that we've had since the financial crisis. It's the 16th largest bank in the U.S., I don't think that the issues that you see with SVB are systemic. I would agree with what Larry Summers has uh, said earlier. However, I I do think it was an opportunity for everyone in the market to take a very big pause today and really think about their positions and think about their liquidity, which is why you saw some of the, um, you know, less liquid parts of the market really get hit much harder today like small cap stocks and uh, high-yield bonds also you know are down pretty dramatically today
2: so sarah even if it's not systemic is it possibly a canary in the coal mine as they talk about they, they although it may be just svb and they got special situations the underlying circumstances could be reflected in other parts of the of the economy as well as frankly financial markets
3: well david one never knows but uh but Silicon Valley Bank did have a very concentrated corporate deposit base. And so there are other regional banks in the U.S., their deposit bases in general seem to be much more diversified. So that's one of the primary reasons why this may not be systematic. But confidence is crucial for banks. And there doesn't appear, especially given the likelihood that Silicon Valley bank depositors will be made whole. Any reason for this to spread through the banking system, which could be a reason to be looking at some of the other banks as, uh, as investments, given they're selling off so rapidly.
2: Well, it wasn't even, I don't think, as a practical minister, Sarah, by the time it started to sort out, it looked like the regional banks were getting hit harder than the big money center banks. Does that suggest that some of the regional banks may be opportunities for investors right now?
3: It does depend on what they hold if in, in their asset basis they have a huge amount of commercial real estate, particularly office, that could end up being very problematic. What we're all really talking about here is a new era. Interest rates are rising and until they stop rising and fall again there's a complete uh, new view on credit. Credit is going to be very difficult to obtain. We're in a credit crunch. So whether you're in real estate and you have a tough time with occupancy, or, or you're a technology banker, this is this is um, this is a whole different environment. So be really careful if you're looking at regional banks. Make sure if they're trading down at their tangible book value, book, less goodwill, that that's really solid ground. There's nothing else that can go terribly wrong on their asset side of their balance sheet.
2: Barbara, what other parts of the economy and of business uh, are interest rate sensitive in the sense? Because we've had a long regime, frankly, of, of pretty low interest rates. That seems to be gone.
5: Right. Well, look, who's benefited the most from very low interest rates? You know, the real estate sector was probably the first one, right? That's the single biggest beneficiary of it. Uh, you'd have to also take a look at the private markets, private credit, private equity, private real estate all benefited from very low rates. So you know, the, the fact that you have is drying up liquidity. The Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates aggressively for the past 12 months. They're trying to slow down the economy. And when you slow down the economy, certain things break. Just like uh, cryptocurrency broke uh, last year, then you had the uh, you know problems in the guilt market in the UK, and now you have a you know U.S. bank that's just failed.
2: Try to slow down the economy. How much, Barbara? Are we going to, into a recession as a practical matter? Because the inflation seems to be more durable than people thought. Mm-hmm. Are they going to have to step on the brakes so hard that we have to go into recession?
5: I don't think there's a recession on the horizon over the course of the next twelve months. Right? There's a very long lead time between policy implementation when you're raising interest rates. And when you would go into recession, the U.S. economy is extremely strong, mm. right? You had 311,000 jobs printed this past month. While it looks like the labor market is starting to ease a bit and weaken a little bit, I would say that the U.S. economy is a very durable super tanker. It would probably take a seismic shock of some sort in order to derail it at this point. And I don't think SBB is that shock.
2: Sarah, you specialize in equities in particular, investing in equities. When it comes to equ- what is your base case on recession? And, and more importantly, does it matter? Does it really affect which equities you invest in, whether you think there's going to be a recession or not?
3: It matters if a stock doesn't already price in some slowing. There's no doubt. I mean, I, my colleagues and I really do believe that the Fed is intent on slowing the U.S. economy. And the same with the European Central Bank. Maybe they're a year behind the Fed. Um, and at some point in time maybe the japanese will tighten monetary policy with a new central bank head so there's a there's a lot of tightening out there and the other side of that is typically economic slowing that's what brings down inflation and inflation is the target so so we're expecting some element of slowing it it may be severe it's hard to know but what we do know is what's priced into stocks and not all stocks but in certain areas that many of them have already discounted an economic slowing not all the cyclicals, for example, but there are, there are sub-industries that have. And, and that's the opportunity where it's already priced and then we can have it. Then the, then the worst can happen
5: and the stock has nowhere to go but up.
2: So, Barbara, let's play the parlor game. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think the terminal rate's got to be for the Fed to get inflation down to where it needs to go?
5: I don't think it's as high as probably what the market's pricing in. I think maybe the Federal Reserve has to tighten one, maybe two more times, mm-hmm. if that, and then be done. The reason is the way that you price in a higher terminal rate is either you have a faster labor force growth or faster productivity growth. The U.S. doesn't have any thought, any thought showing of that being the case at this point. So for us, we do not believe that our star is 6% or something above there at this point. I don't think that the U.S. economy can grow so fast or it's been such a dramatic change that it's been over the past 20 years. So we don't think that rates have to go much higher at this point.
2: Sarah Ketter and Barbara Reinhardt will be staying with us as we turn to what all this means for your portfolio. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
0: U.S. only. Learn more at public.com/disclosures/high-yield-account.
1: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry, and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
6: In darkest Washington, the Reagan administration stuck to its proposed $695 billion budget. A number that in Washington is somehow regarded as lean and austere. And the Democratic leadership in Congress stuck to its view that the budget is, as one senator put it, cruel, inhuman, and unfair. Tune in next week for further non-surprises.
2: That was Louis Ruckheiser back in March of 1981 when the number one movie in the country was Back Roads with Sally Fields and Tommy Lee Jones. The number one song was 9 to 5 with Dolly Parton. And the proposed federal budget was a whopping $695 billion instead of the $6.9 trillion proposed by President Biden just this week. Still with us are Barbara Reinhardt of Voya Investment Management and Sarah Ketter of Causeway Capital. So, Barbara, let me start with you here. We want to turn now to the question of with the portfolio. This is your job in part to figure out how to allocate portfolios. Mm -hmm. Given all that we've said about where we are and the tightening curve, everything we've seen, how do you manage your portfolios these days?
5: One thing that we're thinking greatly about, David, is our international equity exposure. So when we think about global equities, we look around the world and we look for the opportunity set. One thing that stands out to us that's probably a little bit overextended at this point is international developed equities. Over the past one year, the S&P is down 4%. International developed equities, you know, Europe and Japan, are up almost 7%. Hmm. That is a very big disparity in returns between those two parts of the world. For Europe, it had been priced for a very big, very bad recession. It didn't transpire. They had much warmer weather than had been expected. But we don't think that all those great things that Europe averted or the luck that Europe had in averting some of that disaster over the past year is likely to be repeated. So we're actually keeping our assets closer to home in the U.S. We think that the Fed is one of the first central banks or major market central banks that has raised interest rates. It's likely to be one of the first ones to stop. And we think as the world slows down, the dollar is likely to get a little bit stronger as a mm. flight to safety and somewhat quality in the US so we're staying a little bit closer to home but we're barbelling it with some exposure to the emerging markets because we do realize that there's been a lot of stimulus put into the pipeline and we think that again emerging markets are so cheap at this point if you can hold them for a three to four to five year period you're likely to be very pleased with your portfolio
2: okay Sarah. so someone said Barbara's talking your equity book here you specialize in equities where are you in developed market equities these days
3: Well, for developed markets, and Barbara has a point that Europe and Japan have out performed the U.S., really more Europe. The euro stock's 50 is up 11% year-to-date in dollars. That's not even a full three months. However, <laughs> that's a rather short time period. Non-U.S. developed has vastly underperformed the U.S. over the last decade. And I've heard this from clients. You know, they, they get very anxious. But So it might be quite some time, if you think about it, in that longer context for non-U.S. developed to catch up with the U.S. And there's still a significant valuation discount for non-U.S. versus U.S., in part due to the different sector weights in the two areas. The U.S. has much more in the way of technology. And year-to-date, interestingly, in a broad global context, technology has led, along with consumer discretionary and and communication services. So investors are still really interested in tech. There's, um, like, I just say, this is the environment we're in, it's one of active management. With rising rates, you just can't buy an index anymore, in my opinion. You have to have a manager who can sift through and, let's say, go to non-US developed and find the stocks that haven't yet had their earnings recovery recognized. Some of them haven't even gone into a downturn. I mean, Barbara noted, the tightening cycle, and I mentioned this as well, it's a little bit lagged in Europe. With all that additional tightening, there may be more casualties. So being very careful about price entry point, being extremely cheap in terms of what you'll pay, is a, is a way to avoid those pitfalls. It's
2: been really great having both of you with us. Thank you so much to Sarah Ketter of Causeway Capital and to Barbara Reinhardt of Voya. Investing related to environmental, social, and governance issues, so-called ESG, has been on a roller coaster ride from being all the rage and embraced by some of the largest financial institutions in the world to being scorned and even the subject of legislation to limit its use. And through it all, it's sometimes hard to sort out how much is investing based on social values and how much is just pursuing value through taking into account all the risks. Afsani Beshlis, CEO of Rock Creek, was an early proponent of ESG investing, at least in certain circumstances, and she's back with us now on Wall Street Week. It's great to have you here, Afsani. Great to be with you. Such a treat. So, so, I mean, take us through this. Is it a choice between return on the one hand and social values on the other? Because that's the way some people like to put the question.
4: You are absolutely right. And I have to tell you, I don't necessarily like the word ESG, just to (laughs) put that on the table right here. But, um... I think what is happening uh, right now uh, in Washington, President Biden did, uh, did uh, veto the bill that was trying to pass through to allow corporate pension plans to consider ESG factors in their investments, not to actually necessarily adopt them, but to actually consider them. So it was a pretty soft requirement. Um, I think that, what that is not showing us is what you said, which is right now, if we, you and I were investing in, let's say, renewable energy we would have lost this year, just in 2023, 1.4% or so. Of course, today the markets got pretty murky, but, um, but if you had invested in oil and gas, we would have lost 3.8%. In the last five years, we would have made 17.4% in mm-hmm. renewable energy, and we would have made about seven to 10%, depending on which index you're looking at in oil and gas. Now, if you looked at other periods, oil and gas might very well be ahead. But what does that mean? It means for investors, renewable energy is really economic. It has now change the technologies with us, such that clean energy happens to be economic. So when you're looking at purely financial decisions, it should certainly be part of your portfolio. So I
2: wonder, if I can put it this way, how much of that's on the fundamentals? That is to say, you can actually make more money by taking uh, uh, environmental, I'll just take environmental, sure. so I won't bother with ESG, okay? And how much is actually just the hydraulic pressure behind environmental investing? It's so popular, the money goes there and it, it drives it up, rather than actually being on the fundamentals
4: so just purely on the fundamentals just purely on the cost of how much it costs now to produce solar energy if you look at that it has become totally fundamentally economic if you look at texas because we see Texas Mm -hmm. and florida are right in the front of the conversation that you mentioned but texas is producing 14 percent of renewable energy in america Mm -hmm. do you think you know, that wouldn't be the case if the fundamentals were not there. They're just, as we speak, building a huge wind, fir- wind um, farm that will produce energy for three million households.
2: i you've been in the markets for a good long time. You've observe, observed all sorts of different positions. Will the market sort this out? That is to say, if you're right, and in fact you'll get better returns on average over time by taking into account environmental concerns. Yes. Will that drive
4: people into those investments, whether they want to be there or not? I actually think people are moving in that direction. So the, there is one thing is the political conversations that are going on, but if you look, if you talk to any businessman, again, not just in Texas, but all over the country, people are investing in an integrated way into, into these uh, sources of energy and, um, and they'll continue. And insurance companies, by the way, are looking at the same factors to make sure they don't lose money. It's very much, it's, it's how, how, the job is how to maximize returns, how to minimize risk. Both of those are very important for investors.
2: So has the, I'll just again say with climate rather yes. than social and governance for of the moment, has it gotten a bad name because some people are using it as a marketing technique. It's, it's actually hard to know which companies are actually making decisions based on it as opposed to just saying they are. Because everybody wants to say they're environmentally yes. correct.
4: I think. You're absolutely right. There's the greenwashing, the green bonds led to some companies that were even using coal, calling themselves green. Uh, So climate has become um, not such a positive word, just like ESG. But if we just talked about energy transition, I don't think many people would disagree. We need to use oil and gas. Most people are using them in the transition, but we're moving towards cheaper sustainable energy. I think everyone is doing that, whether you're looking at Saudi Arabia, UAE, or Texas.
2: It's so wonderful to have you here, Afsani, always. Thank you so much. That's Afsani Beshlas of Rock Creek. Coming up, we wrap up our week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We welcome now our special Wall Street Week contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Larry, thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, we have to talk about Silicon Valley Bank. It's been unbe- developing toward the end of the week. A lot happened. They pretty quickly went into receivership from the FDIC. What does it tell us uh, uh, more broadly about what's going on in the banking sector or in the economy? Look, uh,
6: there's still plenty of fog of war here. and We're still all trying to sort through it. There clearly was a big managerial failure. It sure looks like uh, regulators were not on the case in the way they could have been. Right now it looks like this is not a broad systemic uh, issue that Silicon Valley Bank and perhaps perhaps several other banks but not many other banks and none of the largest banks had um, a mismatch between the the kind of deposits they had, and the ways in which they had invested uh, their money in longer-term bonds. And so I don't think this is likely to be a broadly systemic uh, problem, but it certainly is gonna have very substantial consequences for Silicon Valley, for the economy of the whole venture uh, sector, which has been dynamic, unless uh, the government is able to assure that this situation is worked through. Right now, the holders of uninsured deposits have been told that those deposits are frozen and can't be withdrawn. There are dozens if not hundreds of startups that were planning to use that cash to meet their payroll next week. If that's not able to happen, the consequences really will be quite severe for our innovation system. I suspect that ways will be found to at least provide significant advances on those deposits uh, to enable the payment of uh, payrolls. I think the FDIC is gonna have to think very hard about how to be maximally creative in using its authorities to assure that this doesn't have a set of collateral consequences for uh, the innovation uh, economy. I don't think this is a time for moral hazard lectures or for talk about teaching people uh, lessons. We have enough strains and challenges uh, in the economy without adding the collateral consequences of uh, a breakdown in an important sector of uh, the economy. So I hope that they will in the short run be aggressive about containing uh, the problem and containing possible contagion. And then over the medium term I think there are important lessons for how we regulate, what roles we use for market values uh, in uh, regulation that need to be learned from this uh, experience. I think we have tended to have a bit of a romance with the community bank relative to the larger uh, banks and we're going to have to figure out how to maintain banking services for uh, communities while moving uh, to also pay attention to making sure that we've got as much financial stability as we possibly can.
2: Whenever we talk about financial stability, we are reassured that the banking system is so much stronger than it was before 2008, 2009, so many reforms. Is there some question now about whether that's exactly right? And let me be very specific, what about the stress tests? Why didn't they kick this out?
6: Look, I think I have written that there are a lot of concerns about uh, the stress tests. I, I do not believe the stress tests give an accurate picture of the resilience of uh, the banking system. I think they are far too optimistic in thinking about what would happen in a catastrophic uh, kind of uh, scenario. That said, I think any fair-minded observer has to uh, think that banks uh, are better protected than they were uh, before the 2008 financial crisis. Though I think we have to recognize that a large part of the lending uh, in the country and lending to businesses is now done by institutions that are not banks. And so there are important issues in uh, the shadow banking system. So this certainly should come as a reminder that uh, Rational financial regulation is hugely important uh, to the success of the
2: American economy. Larry, we also got jobs numbers out on Friday this week and they were more robust once again than expected. 311,000 new jobs. Uh, At the same time, the rate of wage increase actually came down just a little bit. What did those tell you about the strength of the economy and for that matter where we're headed with inflation?
6: I think that most of us uh, probably have a kind of now more than ever uh view after these numbers. If you are a person who is very worried about inflation, you focus on the strength uh in the economy and the seemingly ever tighter uh labor market. If you're a person who is less concerned about inflation, you probably take heart from the lower wage uh, inflation number. So I doubt these numbers changed uh, too many minds. I'm going to be watching for the CPI number uh, next week, but I think more broadly it seems to me that uh, we don't have a lot of evidence of a basic downwards trend uh, in inflation. It looks to me more like the inflation story is fluctuation around an underlying inflation rate of four and a half or five. And if that's close to right, it suggests that the Fed has considerably more work to do. Well,
2: that's exactly my question. What does it mean for monetary policy? What do you think the Fed should take away from these numbers? And what does that mean they should do, Uh, for example, on terminal rate?
6: I suspect that there's a quite good chance that we're going to need to get to a terminal rate uh, near six. After all, we have inflation running at close to 5%, uh, and we have interest rates at about 5%, and so interest rates and inflation in the same range doesn't point to a lot of pressure to uh, bring inflation down. So I'm very much open to changing my mind and i think confident pronouncements about these things are a uh mistake if we get a strong cpi number on tuesday i think the right thing to do will quite likely be to increase uh, rates by 50 basis points in march because if we're pretty confident that rate increases of that magnitude are necessary I don't see much reason not to get on not to get on with it uh, if the CPI number is more moderate then I think it's a or comes in surprisingly low then I think it's a very different uh, kind of judgment that needs uh, to be reached uh, right. in general I think there is more risk of underreacting uh, to the inflation concern than of overreacting.
2: Larry, finally, and briefly if we can, what about the budget that we saw out of the White House this week? Uh, $6.9 trillion, spending an awful lot more on a lot of things. Are we having a serious discussion about the federal budget on either the Democrats or the Republican side at this point, and if not, how do we get to one?
6: A lot of good ideas in the budget, but I think for a variety of reasons, the Deficit path is likely to end up greater than the administration imagines unless there are substantial Policy actions and I think we're getting back into a phase as interest rates rise Where it's going to be very important to think about uh, the long-run behavior of budget deficits in many ways uh, the picture is more adverse than it was a decade ago when the Simpson-Bowles process was uh, launched. So I do think we need to have that as a bipartisan uh, conversation. I welcome the President's uh, providing his budgetary blueprint and asking the Republicans to provide their political uh, blueprint as a basis for uh, conversation and uh, dialogue. I am glad to see rising focus on containing healthcare costs because that's probably the single most important right. issue in that's thinking right. about the budget over right. the longer term. Right. Though I'd have to say that my right. judgment is that the ultimately right. necessary expenditures right. on national security right. are gonna be substantially greater than in the
2: president's budget. Larry, thank you so much. That's Larry Summers of Harvard. Coming up, whatever you think of ChatGPT, maybe it can help us get rid of some of those pesky lawyers. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Finally, one more thought. The first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. Well, that wasn't really my idea. Shakespeare had his character, Dick the Butcher, say it in Henry VI, Part II. But it's something we've heard often repeated, even by some lawyers like me. Now, for the first time, it may just be possible, maybe not to kill the lawyers, but to make them a little less necessary. It's a use case for artificial intelligence and all those chatbots we're hearing so much about.
1: This is ChatGPT.
2: That is rolling out an AI chatbot service. As ChatGPT fever sweeps the world. It's way too early to say where AI will lead us, but it's hard to find anyone denying that it's going to be big. This could be the most important general purpose technology since the wheel or fire. With the potential to transform everything from banking, as Jamie Dimon told us this week. AI is real. This is not no crypto, that's not crypto Net. This is a technology which is staggering and we're fully engaged. To hedge funds, according to Ken Griffin of Citadel. This branch of AI will be game-changing for the economy. And and like most
6: changes in technology with clear winners and losers.
2: To IT with HPE CEO Neri pointing to AI for his company's growth prospects. I know AI is top of mind for yeah. people today and that's where is a big opportunity for us as a company. And now chatbots are stepping up to the bar, the legal bar that is, with reports that ChatGPT scored a passing C plus on a standard law school exam at the University of Minnesota. Now that's not good enough to make law review, but a passing grade it is nonetheless. And that may just be good enough for routine contracts and memoranda at global law firm Allen and Overy, which has been using its own chatbot dubbed Harvey, eerily similar to the Hal of 2001, a space odyssey.
4: And I- I want to help you.
2: Not to be outdone, major international law firm DLA Piper said this week it has hired a new chief data scientist to oversee 10 as what they call top tier data scientists for its new artificial intelligence and data analytics practice. But for all the anticipation of a brave new world, it's a little hard to imagine a chatbot, no matter how smart, taking the place of a good old country lawyer. I've been appointed to defend Tom Robinson. Now that he's been charged, that's what I intend to do. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie?